Christianity has to be lived out. What I mean by that is that Christianity is not something that just happens in our heads. It's not just saying, I believe certain things. Nor is it merely a matter of religious practice. Doing certain things, coming to church, reading your Bible, being confirmed, taking communion, all those kinds of things, important as they are. Christianity fundamentally has to be lived out. And it's lived out in the context of our lives, our families, our work life, our social life, how we live from day to day. Christianity has to be lived out. And there are two contexts in which we can, which we live out, which people live out their discipleship. Two contexts that can destroy discipleship. The first one, let's call it adversity. It can be really, really hard to follow Christ when things are not going well. It can be particularly hard to follow the Lord Jesus when there is opposition of varying degrees that we face because we're followers of Jesus Christ. If you live in a country or live in a society or live in a home situation where there's opposition to Jesus, then that can make life as a follower of Jesus really difficult. That can sink your life as a Christian. It's no wonder, is it, that Peter talks about these fiery ordeal, this fiery ordeal in chapter 4 and verse 12. Adversity can sink you as a Christian. But here's the other one. Let's call it prosperity. Let's call it a situation where it's fairly easy to be a Christian because there isn't any obvious opposition. People tolerate you. They may even like you. It's easy to come to church. It's easy to live as a Christian. And then when you add on top of that an extra twist, the dimension of affluence, then that context of living out life as a Christian can kill you. Because if you buy into that lifestyle, if you succumb to that, it will destroy your life as a Christian. Two contexts, both of them have the capacity to wreck discipleship. But both of them, both adversity and prosperity, can also be arenas where Christian life can flourish and grow. Where people can shine for Jesus, if you like. And the thing that holds both of those together, the issue in both cases is identical. Whether it's adversity or prosperity, it's this. Am I going to follow Jesus despite the opposition or despite the prosperity? Am I going to go the way of Jesus? Am I going to reject the lifestyle of those around me in order to follow Christ? That's the issue in both cases. Now Peter, as he comes towards the end of this letter, tells us some really, really important things about this context of discipleship where it's a challenge. And it's important that we really understand this. The first thing is this. 
If you become a follower of Jesus Christ, your faith is going to be challenged. It is going to be challenged. You don't have to go to Afghanistan in order to find a challenge to live as a Christian. Because remember, adversity can kill you, but so can prosperity. So just stay in Willoughby or Chatswood. Somebody said to me this morning at the early service, I'm okay because I live in Chatswood. I don't live in Willoughby. No, you don't. <laughs> Your faith will be challenged. So don't be surprised. Chapter 4 and verse 12. Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that's coming. I, I sometimes worry that people think that if they come to Christ, then everything's going to become okay. And there is a sense in which that's true. Because when we come to the Lord Jesus and give our lives to Him, when we trust Him, <clears throat> then the most important things start to get right. First of all, our relationship with God gets put right, and then he starts dealing with us. And that's more important than anything else. But frankly, if you start to follow Jesus Christ, it can create mess in all kinds of other areas. Because your faith, you see, will be challenged. And Peter goes on, so, so you need to understand that, if you're going to become a follower of Jesus Christ, Jesus, God is going to mess with your life, and there are going to be challenges to your faith. So don't be surprised. And Peter goes on to give a reason for that. <clears throat> Verse 17. It's time for judgment to begin with God's household. Your faith is going to be tested because in this time that is in between the period of Jesus' first coming and his return, in this period, Christians will experience trials, fiery ordeal, challenges to their faith. There will be suffering as a result of being a follower of Jesus Christ in this time. Now some of you may be looking at that verse and you are thinking, what on earth is that about? Judgment on God's household? Doesn't God's household mean the church? Followers of Jesus? Yes. Are people who are followers of Jesus though forgiven? <coughs> yes. Hasn't their relationship with Jesus, with God, been put right because of Jesus? Yes. Doesn't it mean we can have confidence that when we stand before God at the end, that He'll say, not guilty? Absolutely. So, what's Peter talking about when he says that in this time, judgment afflicts God's church? You're asking that question, aren't you? If you're not, you ought to be. Well, let's have a look at this. I want to say some things about judgment. Um, here's the first thing about judgment. Judgment, God's judgment of this world has already started. It's already started. It's already underway. Now, if you know your Bibles, some of you may be saying, but isn't God's judgment at the end when Christ returns? Yes, that's the final judgment. But God's judgment is already in operation. So how does it work? When we think about God's judgment, I don't know about you, but, but my mind tends to go to those stories in the Old Testament like 
the Genesis flood. God wipes out everybody with a flood. Dramatic story of judgment. Or maybe Sodom and Gomorrah. Fire and brimstone coming down on people. God's judgment. Or maybe to the last book of the Bible, all those weird descriptions, those terrifying descriptions of God's judgment. Maybe you're a bit like me and you think about God's judgment in those dramatic terms. What Peter has in mind is not so dramatic, but no less serious. Think about it like this. When people reject Christ, or to put it another way, when people do not give their lives to Jesus Christ, when they do not, to use the language of people, Peter, obey the gospel by responding in repentance <coughs> and faith and give their lives to Jesus Christ, they set the whole direction of their life away from God. And that means away from everything that's good. Because God is the source of all good. And when God says, this is the way to live, give your life to Jesus Christ and follow Him, that is good. Any other way is by definition not good. That it is, that is, it is evil. And even though people's lives will be characterized by things that in and of themselves are good, so people who reject Christ will often be good parents. They make it to charities. Those are good things, but they don't make that person's life good because the direction of their life is turned away from God. And in fact, they contribute towards a life that is lived away from God. And God's judgment is this. If you want to walk away from Jesus Christ and not give your life to Him, go ahead. Feel free. And you'll do that because you think it's a good thing to do. People do not reject Jesus Christ because they think that rejecting Jesus is a bad thing. People don't embrace a life that's turned away from God because they think that's a bad thing. They do because they think it's good. That's God's judgment. God judge allows people to imagine that living a life apart from Jesus Christ is good. That's God's judgment. And it's why Paul in Romans 3 verse 10 can say, say there's no one righteous, not even one, no one who does good. It's why in Romans 1 Paul can talk about how God gives people over. If you like, it just says, have your own one. You go off in that direction. Now, what's that got to do with the church and judgment? Well, a life that's turned against God will always manifest some aspects of that rebellion against God to a greater or lesser degree. It will contribute towards a society and a community that is turned against God. And as part of that, to some degree or other, it will be turned against those who are followers of Jesus Christ. If you go to some parts of the world, it will be really obvious because Christians will be persecuted and maybe even killed. 
It will be that's unlikely to happen. But there will be manifestations, it will be, from people against Christians, who are against <coughs> Christians in some kind of middle class, will it be such a way? Because they turned against Christ. Now when you put all that together, what that means is that because God has poured out his judgment, that is people really choose to turn their lives away from Christ, think that that's a good thing, that's God's judgment. As a result of that, Christians will experience some degree of suffering from their hands. Do you get that? So when Peter says it's time for judgment to begin with God's household, he's saying during this period of God's judgment, Christians will suffer in varying degrees. And that suffering is actually a sign that God is judging. That's what he's saying. Now, he gives some perspective on this in case we get really depressed about it. Don't get depressed about it if you're a follower of Jesus. If you're not a follower of Jesus, get really depressed. Do something about it. You're a follower of Jesus, don't get impressed, get some perspective here he moves from the lesser to the greater. Verse 17. If it, that is, judgment begins with us, what do you think is going to be for those who reject Christ when they face the final judgment? If you think suffering as a Christian is bad in Willoughby, just think what it's going to be for those who face Christ <coughs> at the end and have to come to terms with their rejection of And then he goes on and says in verse 18, and there's a reminder in verse 18 of some words of Jesus. You know, Jesus said, if you're going to become my follower, you need to recognize there'll be a cost in that. You need to give up your life in order to save it. That the word is narrow, the way is narrow. The gate is narrow. There's a cost in following Jesus. And there's a reminder there, if it's hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Yes, it is difficult to follow Jesus, but it has nothing compared with the judgment that will fall on those who reject God's gracious offer of Jesus Christ. So get some... So your faith will be tested. Don't be surprised. Christians will suffer during this time. But those trials are a good thing. They're a good thing. Because what they do is that they expose and strengthen genuine faith. And the outcome of that is salvation. And if you flip back to chapter 1 and verse 7, did you hear the hints of chapter 1, verse 7, way at the end that we've just been looking at in verse 12? In verse 7 of chapter 1, Peter writes, These trials have come so that the genuineness of your faith, the greater worth of gold, which perishes, even though, which is the phrase refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. These trials are a good thing. God is doing something in your life 
And even though it may be painful for the time being, and sometimes it will be, it's a good thing. And it's an indicator to those outside of Christ as to how messed up this world is that those who follow Christ experience some degree or other of their opposition. And therefore the suffering of Christians is a warning to those outside of Christ of the judgment to come. Christians are suffering as a result of God's judgment. He says to people, do what you want. And there are one sign of judgment to come on those who reject Christ. Your faith will be tested. Evening will it be. Evening will be. Sometimes I think it's hard for us to imagine that uh, in Willoughby we get tested. So let me just remind you the words of Jesus, woe to to you when everyone speaks well of you. You can't serve God and money. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Think about that. Hasn't happened recently, has it? Camels through the eyes of needles. Doesn't happen. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of an eagle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. It will be a challenge to us in Willoughby to go against the grain. Your faith will be tested. So, how are you going to deal with this? Now, remember, he's talking about <coughs> suffering that comes as a result of following Christ, not the sufferings that come as part of life to everybody. Everybody suffers to some degree or other. This is suffering as a result of following Christ. So chapter 4 and verse 15. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer. Note. Take note. Don't murder anybody. <coughs> or thief. Or any other kind of criminal. Don't suffer because you're breaking the law, because you're doing something that's wrong. The suffering he's talking about is suffering as a result of following Christ. Or even, he goes on to say, as a meddler. Talk about that in your commentary. <laughs> Ask me. However, if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed. Praise God. So how do we deal with us, our trials, our suffering? Number one, have a party. Have a party. Rejoice. That's what he says, isn't it? Verse 13, rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. We're called to follow Christ, and that means for all of us to some degree or other, as followers of Jesus, that there will be suffering, so rejoice, because that's part of it. It shows that your faith is genuine. In fact, it says you're blessed. You have the smile of God on your life when you're suffering. For the cause of Christ. Verse 14, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Not only that, but you actually manifest something of God Himself. For the spirit and glory of God rests on you. There's a particular glory about God's people when they bear insults and when they suffer for the name of Christ. You know, we speak of the presence of God amongst us, and when Christians, when Christians suffer, that sense of the presence of God is intensified. 
And there's something about speaking of the presence of Jesus when Christians suffer for their faith. And there's something about the future glory that's to be revealed when we suffer for the cause of Christ. Isn't that paradoxical? The thing that speaks in a sense most of the glory of the future, of who God is, is when we suffer for the cause of Christ. So have a party. Well, he says rejoice. Next thing we need to do is trust God in that. Verse 19, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator. Follow the example of Jesus who, in chapter 2, and verse 23, when they hurled their insults at him, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Trust God. Trust your life to him. So rejoice, trust God, and keep on following Jesus. Verse 19, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Continuing to do good does not mean just give lots of money to charities. It might include that, but it's talking about continuing to follow Christ in obedience and holiness. So, what have we got? Your faith, Peter says, will be tested. How do we respond to that? Rejoice, trust God, and continue to do good. Continue to follow Christ. Every day, make the step of discipleship. And then he goes on in chapter 5 to shift. And he talks about the church. Doesn't he? So chapter 5 on verse 1, he addresses church leaders. To the elders among you. That is, to the church leaders. Why does he start talking about the church? You know you can't do the Christian life on your own. Do you know that? We have to do it as part of the community of followers of Jesus Christ. We need each other. And if Christians are going to thrive in Willoughby, and if they're going to thrive when they face opposition, in Willoughby or anyone anywhere else, there needs to be a healthy church community, which is why leaders matter. And therefore there is this strong appeal that he makes in chapter 5 and verse 1, to the elders, to the leaders, I appeal to you. Leadership matters if there's to be a healthy church. So, something for leaders in the church. Um, in case sometimes you might think that I don't preach to myself, it should be fairly obvious in this section, if not in others. Christian leaders should model suffering for the cause of Christ. We are to be models. Those of you who are in leadership, those of us who are in leadership need to model suffering for the cause of Christ in Willoughby. Look at what he says. As a fellow elder, I'm a fellow church leader, he said, and a witness of Christ's suffering who will also share in the glory to be revealed. When Peter writes here as a witness of Christ's suffering, he is not 
by faith. Talking about the fact that he was an eyewitness of Christ's life and death. He's saying, I too bear witness to Christ through my suffering for the sake of Christ. In other words, he's saying, I follow Christ, that means I suffer, you follow me. Peter models <coughs> suffering for the cause of Christ, and he does that in the knowledge that there's a living hope for future glory. Christian leaders must lead by example, and that must be marked by a willingness to suffer for the cause of Christ. Christian leaders should model Christ's leadership. He uses the language of shepherd here. Shepherd is sometimes quite often used in the Bible. As a way of talking about the leaders of God's people, the shepherds of Israel are the leaders of Israel. Above all, above all, the shepherd is of course Jesus, the great leader of his people. And how does Jesus lead? He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. This idea of being a shepherd under the great shepherd may have been very poignant for Peter, because after the resurrection, which is after Peter's denial of Jesus, the Lord meets with him and takes him on one side and says, Feed my sheep. Three times, feed my sheep. Paralleling the threefold denial of Jesus. Feed my sheep. Christian leaders should model their leadership on Christ's leadership, which is, number one, willing leadership. That is, leadership from the heart. Verse 2, lead not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be. Our leadership needs to come out of a desire to do it, and therefore, to lead as Christ would lead. If it doesn't come out of the heart, then the tendency for leadership will be that it will be cold, it will be grudging, and it will be censorious. Lead from the heart. Do because you're willing. Follow the example of Christ secondly in selfless leadership. It's for the sake of the flock. Verse 2 of chapter 5. Not dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Which is the contrast. It's not about self. About gaining from leadership. It's about wanting to see God's people flourish. Willing leadership that comes from the heart, selfless leadership for the sake of God's people, and humble leadership. Verse 3, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. It's not about success, it's not about position, it's about giving ourselves for the sake of the people we serve, like Jesus did. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So Christian leadership should lead by example. Christian leaders should model Christ's leadership. And Christian leaders are ultimately answerable to Christ, who is, verse 4, the chief shepherd, and one day he will appear. And Peter says, if you like, I want you on that day to receive the crown of glory, because you're answerable to the great shepherd. Every Christian leader needs to remember, these are not my sheep. They are Christ's sheep. Christian leaders are only ever 
under shepherds answering to God. Something for leaders and then something for everybody. Verse 5, you who are younger, which means everybody else. You got that? The elders are the leaders. Those who are younger, it just means those who are not in leadership. So it's everybody. All of us. And he says, respect your leaders. You who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. Follow the example of leaders. Do what they do. Follow their lead. And practice humility towards everybody. Verse 5. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. God opposes the prayer that shows favour to the humble. Something for leaders, something for everybody. If we're going to do discipleship, we need each other. And that means we need a healthy church. Let's pull this together some final thoughts. Here they are. There are four of them. There are four of them because the Bible works in fours. First one is this. God is dealing with your pride and mine. Get over it and accept it. He is humbling us. Verse 6. Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. You say, well, doesn't he say here that we should humble ourselves? What it means is this. God is humbling us through the trials. We need to accept it. Let that humbling work of God do its work. There are two ways, at least, that you can respond to what God is doing in humbling us. One is to accept it and allow God to do his work of humbling. Have its effect on us, or we can resent it. That's what he means. God is in the business of dealing with your pride. And that's really important because we all have pride and God opposes the pride that shows favour to the humble. So if you want God to lift you up and give you his smile of affirmation, you need to let him deal with your pride. Pride will kill you. So God is humbling you accept what he's doing. It's a good thing. That's the first one. Second one. Take all your anxieties. You will have anxieties as a follower of Jesus Christ. Especially as you face suffering, challenges. Take those anxieties and just throw them at Jesus. Just load them all up on him. Don't hold back. Don't say, I can't take that to Jesus. You know, that's just a bit private or trivial or too big. Take your anxieties and cast them on Jesus. Or cast them on God, he said. Because, because he cares for you. You remember? When you're a follower of Jesus, God loves you as much as he loves Jesus. So cast your anxieties on him. Take them to him. He cares about you. God is humbling you. Cast your anxieties on him. On the tree. Stay awake. Really. Verse 8, be alert, but sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. The world's a dangerous pet place. There is suffering, and here Peter adds an extra dimension to it, supernatural dimension. 
It's not just the people in the neighborhood. It's not just the culture. It's not just the lure of Willoughby. Behind that, Satan prowls around. And, and notice what he wants to do is destroy us. God, through trials, is building us up. Satan wants to destroy us. So Paul said, Peter says, don't go to sleep, just be alert about this and stand firm. If you're a follower of Christ, you can resist Satan. Because remember, chapter 3, Jesus is above all power and authority. So resist him, don't give in to him, don't give in to Willoughby. Because if you do that, you're giving in to the devil. Or chapter. And, and, and you're not alone in this, verse 9, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. Not just you, but me. So, God's dealing with your pride. Cast your anxieties on Him. Stay awake and stand. The fourth thing, trust God. Trust God because there's a glorious ending to all this. Great reversal. Verse 10, and the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little, will himself restore you and make you strong and firm and steadfast. You know there's a day coming when the followers of Jesus, some of them have experienced the most appalling suffering. And even if will have been, people will have been despised and people will have been ridiculed and there will have been challenges in following Christ because the pull to succumb to a Willoughby lifestyle will have been really strong. But there will be people who have resisted that, and some people will have laughed at them as a result of the day coming. When God will raise people like that up, and in front of the entire universe, He will say, You see that person there? That's one of my children. They are precious to you see that person over there? They are one of my children, and I want you to know how much I value them. And those of you who rejected them were rejecting me. A great reversal. Hurts, wounds that have been inflicted will be healed, will be restored. Humiliation will be dealt with, and we will be Raise up, lifted up by the mighty arm of God, and notice that He's able to do it. There's no question about this. Look at how He finishes. To Him is the power and forever and ever. He will do it. He's going to do it for every child of God. God's humbling you. He's dealing with your pride. That's a good thing. <coughs> Cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Don't go to sleep. Be alert. It's dangerous out there. But Christ has won the victory. And then trust God. And then right at the end, look at how he finishes up. Verse 12. This is the true grace of God. Everything I've been writing about this Peter is true. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has given us living hope through the resurrection. 
into an inheritance that can never fail or perish, kept secure for you. This is the true grace of God. You may be suffering, you may be hard, but this is true. So stand firm in it. This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So each day, step out into following Christ. What does it mean for me tomorrow to take a step on that journey of discipleship, of following Christ? Standing in. And then the next day, the next day, I keep on taking those steps until the day when he lifts your Father, may we be people who are stepping out to follow you. Father, I pray particularly for brothers and sisters who are finding the going hard, who are finding the challenge is really great. Father, I pray particularly for those who are struggling with what does it mean for me to be a follower of Jesus in Willoughby? What does it mean to me to, for me to resist this culture of affluence and embrace what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Father, please give courage to all of us. Give us a willingness to step out in faith and take that next step, whatever it is for us, in following Jesus. In his name and for his sake we pray. Amen.